Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the pandemic podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on April 28th, 2016. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined as always by the incredibly talented Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. And this week on Twill, we're very pleased to welcome James Hodge, professor of public health law and ethics and director of the public health law and policy program at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. He's a prolific and influential scholar and an expert on emergency legal and ethical preparedness, obesity laws and policies, vaccination law, and public health information, privacy law, and policy. Big welcome to the pod, James. It's my pleasure to be able to join you both. Thank you. So very quick lightning round today. I wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about drug prices. Drug companies, and I'm not really thinking about the outliers who seem to do anything they can to be forced into a congressional hearing, uh, but rather the rest who continue to be somewhat tone deaf apparently oblivious to uh, seriously worsening opinion poll numbers, uh, cutting across party lines, wanting something done about pricing. There were recent reports suggesting uh, prices are up by about 12%, uh, but a nice piece by Katie Thomas in The Times this week uh, said that that was an increase in list price, uh, that the real increase was more like 2.8%. Uh, Thomas's article uh, uh, continued with a uh, uh, painting of a picture of pretty obtuse, opaque pricing. Um, and it reminded me very much of the, the charge master issues we've explored here on Twill, uh, particularly with Aaron Fuse Brown. Um, Thomas also noticed the, noted the uh, rent-seeking behavior of intermediaries uh, in this, so drug distributors, uh, pharmacies, and uh, uh, on occasion, uh, PBMs. Um, at the same time, I think the discussion about what to do about prices seems to be moving from the hysterical to something more substantive. Uh, obviously, we've heard a lot about transparency uh, and, of course, the repeal overdue of the that long-standing embarrassment that is the Part D non-interference clause contained in the MMA 2003. Um, the latest proposal, uh, naturally described as a grenade uh, by Politico's Nancy Cook and Sarah Carlin Smith is some type of reference pricing, essentially capping state payments to the price paid by the VA. Uh, that, of course, is not covered by the 2003 Act and so has been very successful in price negotiations. Uh, such a proposal may get on the ballot in California in November. Now, friend of the show, Rachel Sachs, writing at Bill of Health this week, poses an interesting question. If the California California proposal, and there's a similar one uh, in Ohio, was to, be, was to pass, exactly how how could it work? Um, it's all very well pegging prices to uh, the VA's pricing, except the VA price is not made public. Um, second, what would happen if drug companies don't play ball? Um, the VA has a limited formulary and can just walk away from a bad deal. But state Medicaid doesn't have that kind of leverage. Um Now, Medicaid does have a best price rule. So Sachs rather intriguingly suggests that if we were to include the VA price in the best price bundle calculation, we could get somewhere. Um, And I just wanted to put that on record because I think we are at the beginning, I hope, uh, of a truly substantive conversation as to how to deal with some of these issues. Yes, I'm really looking forward to reading the Sachs piece, Nick. And I actually have a couple of pieces that are on drug prices as well, this time on 
the insurer level. And I guess I should start by saying that there was a fantastic uh, uh, editorial in the Boston Globe by uh, Dean Flyer at Harvard on you know the importance of distinguishing between the types of drugs that are just very low value, me too drugs or out of patent drugs and really breakthrough therapies. And we're seeing some of that distinction now in New York in terms of the role of the state in dealing with insurers and Medicaid with respect to hepatitis C cures that have recently come on the market, like Sivaldi. So we're seeing, for example, uh, in Medicaid, the state uh, just uh, yesterday in New York gave a victory to thousands of patients who are suffering from hepatitis C to change the guidelines for Medicaid. So now they do not have to worry uh, uh wait until they are seriously ill in order to get access to drugs like Harvoni. Um, we also see in New York that uh, New York insurers essentially were in negotiations with Eric Schneiderman and have now agreed to cover and to change their criteria for covering the drugs that cure hepatitis C, these very costly drugs that are new on the market. Um, because essentially there was such an outcry over the inhumanity of forcing individuals to wait until their liver was seriously damaged before getting access to the drugs. So I think that both of these New York uh, initiatives on both the Medicaid and the insurance regulation level are really positive steps forward toward getting uh, fast access to a drug which you know should be available to individuals when it can do the most good uh, and not to create sort of artificial rationing environments for it. Interesting stuff. Uh, but as we've noted before, this one is going to, this one is going to run and run all the way through the, the next uh, administration, isn't it? So James, uh, welcome again. And uh, so to Zika, uh, it's very hard for me to know where to start, uh, but maybe a good place would be to give us some perspective. Um, you know, if you look back at West Nile, H1N1, Ebola, or even, you know, if you wanted to spread out beyond the pandemics and uh, other public emergencies from Katrina to Ike or whatever, can you give us a sense of the Zika threat, um, the enormity of it, um, and sort of how it differs or is similar science level, public health level from some of these other uh, issues that we've had to deal with. Sure, Nicholas, this is exactly where we stand in relation to these types of threats. They're all different. They have unique features. They present different population risks. And that's why they're so challenging. And we've been commenting for the last several months about the potential impacts globally of Zika virus, making comparisons to West Nile, making comparisons to Ebola, to SARS, H1, the other types of uh, emerging infectious disease threats that you've mentioned. This one's different, and it's different for some reasons that are disturbing. First of all, you've got to understand the latency of the particular issues here. These are issues that, in regards to the threat presented to populations, will not be open and transparent and patent. These are threats that will appear much later in regards to the potential for uh, reproductive health implications, for the potential for long-term disabling effects on offspring. These are the sorts of things that make Zika very disturbing, frightening, and at times just difficult to assess how to best respond from a legal and ethical perspective. But just to put it into context, let's just make sure we've got facts clearly on the table. Zika virus is spreading systematically across South America as we know. It will arrive in the United States soon. It's already in a couple of territories, Puerto Rico, Samoa Islands. 
It will be in Florida soon. It'll be in other southeastern states. Could arrive in Arizona, Texas, and other big population areas. It will present various different risks than what we've seen in developing countries like Brazil and Colombia. We have a much more sophisticated healthcare and public health system. We have the wealth and resources to prevent infection in a lot of cases. But when you're dealing with a very latent condition of which only one out of five people will even know that they've been infected with Zika, and you have the potential for it to be infections through mosquitoes, that's your primary highway, but through sexual transmission, potential blood transfusions, and other routes that epidemiologists are looking at very carefully, you have the chance for this specific condition to impact an entire, you know, millions of people in the United States, largely based on the spread of these mosquitoes, in a way that we might not be able to measure fully for months, if not years. That's what makes this particular condition so frightening, and that's why it's getting a lot of international attention. Yes, it really does seem like an incredibly complex and difficult issue. And I think reading your uh, JAMA viewpoint piece uh, with uh, Lawrence Gostin with respect to the mosquito abatement, I found it really interesting to uh, learn that there are over 700 mosquito control districts in the U.S., some of which are in local health agencies. There's other ways in which these uh, mosquitoes are addressed. And I was wondering if you could share with us sort of what would be the idea uh, in terms of mosquito abatement, either in the American South or throughout the U.S., that might be able to, say, nip this problem in the bud or reduce its impact when the as the virus moves on to uh, more and more U.S. territories. Yeah, it's got my concerns as well, Frank, without question. And the reasons for that are quite profound. There is a very different and divergent series of steps that will be taken nationally to control and abate mosquitoes. These raise some very serious legal issues as well. How much and how extensive will we use various insecticides? What environmental risks do they pose? We've seen some of the interesting issues related to genetically modified mosquitoes and their potential release in the Keys of Florida here very soon, even with uh, potential FDA approval. We've seen other techniques technologically be proposed from insertion of certain bacteria into existing mosquitoes to kill these off. So the real questions are, why don't we just kill these mosquitoes as thoroughly as possible and we'll rid ourselves of this particular risk. That's not easily accomplished. Not even in the specific 700 plus jurisdictions with pretty well-defined mosquito abatement measures. Other places will of course be using a whole different panoply of approaches through various uh, federal, state, and local agencies to try to abate these mosquitoes, but all of them will struggle up against the sheer reality that this mosquito is not easily terminated. It's a very difficult uh, mosquito to target for purposes of insecticide and other types of measures. You don't just send a defogger down the street and spray your street for a particular mosquito like you would with West Nile, and then look for the best in regards to potential limitation of impacts. These mosquitoes breed very successfully in very small amounts of water. Their eggs, desiccated, can exist on dry surfaces for months once they hit a little bit of water, like what happened, say, in Arizona during a spring or summer shower. Those eggs become live. They will be uh, basically hatched within a very short period of time. This is the challenge Puerto Rico's had. Brazil has faced it. Colombia's facing it. You don't get rid of these mosquitoes easily, even with really good mosquito abatement efforts in place. And you certainly don't do it without very significant legal controversies that may underlie that. I was reading the other day some of the news reports from Florida that uh, I, I guess you're alluding to, James, 
um, uh, particularly with regard to these proposed trials using what should we call them? The Oxitec mosquitoes. Uh, that's the British company that that's that, that's that's genetically modified them. Um, what do we know about the effectiveness of this model? And um, then on the other side of the the, the cost benefit equation, um, uh, what do we know about the potential for uh, environmental and ecological uh, problems that some of the Florida residents are worried about? Oh, such great questions, Nicholas. It's exactly what's been highlighting a lot of what is happening on Capitol Hill and within FDA right now, trying to consider whether this is the technological fix to Zika virus. What we do know, I think, that I've seen in legitimate sources, some very illegitimate, as with any emerging infectious condition that arises in de declarations of emergency like we've seen, there will be a lot of misinformation out there. Well-informed sources are suggesting this particular route to technologically wipe out the 80s type of mosquitoes mostly responsible for the spread of Zika, could quite be, could be efficacious. I mean, honestly, they're showing in some trials, and they've used these in other places in Brazil and other locales, that this may work. It may work quite effectively to basically eliminate this particular type of mosquito during its you know, uh, typical season. We'll be seeing it soon in the summer season in the very southeastern states. And this has worked in some places. So that raises a question. Let's just, you know, why not just do it? Let's authorize it. Let's make it happen. Nicholas, on the other side of it, you raised the appropriate point. We don't know what the aftermath is at this point. That's severely understudied. FDA is looking at it presently. FDA is prepared to move fast on this. It has the ability to issue and utilize emergency measures to, or to basically allow this type of technology to be used extensively and quickly. But the fact is we just don't know. The ecological implications, at least based on any good science that I've seen so far, that suggest what the predictions might be a year from now, or for the entire ecology of a particular area that may have been wiped out uh, of these particular mosquitoes. So you study these things carefully, just like you would the release of any drug or vaccine in the market. You study them carefully, and you study them wisely to make sure that the damage done in relation to this type of intervention wouldn't be much more severe than the potential implications of Zika to begin with. That's where things get even more interesting. Very clearly, we're trying to do our best to assess the health impacts, the environmental impacts, and do that in real time. But on the flip side, we're really just trying to get a, gris a grasp of where we stand epidemiologically with Zika virus overall. Now, what you're seeing definitively through CDC and through WHO this past couple of weeks is a very clear suggestion now beyond uh, mere conjecture. This virus does cause microcephaly in infants. It does cause GBS or Guillain-Barre syndrome and even otherwise normal healthy adults. This is the type of science that's coming forward now. It's shaping how we're viewing the policy. Congress is taking it more seriously. But we also must not get too wrapped up in the fear factor. It does cause microcephaly, there's no question. But the percentage of pregnancies among women that may be infected with Zika virus, either from mosquitoes directly or through sexual transmission, the percentage of pregnancies at best is looking to be around 1% might be impacted directly by Zika virus in the form of microcephaly. That may tell us all, let's take a break, let's step back from this and let's just make some good guided measures. But again, epidemiologists now hinting at something even more serious. Microcephaly are the known, you know, very clear, very open disabling effects that you can see right now 
and an infant born to a mother infected with Zika. Those are horrendous situations in Brazil, and soon they'll show up in hospitals in the United States. I think we can predict that fairly well. Here's the latent side of these infant-related issues uh, that we're exploring as we speak. Some of the mental and physical disabling impacts of Zika virus will not be known for years. So what they're starting to see in some of the original outbreaks in various different island communities and such where Zika's already ravaged the community and you know, basically infected uh, tens of thousands of people, they're starting to see links among those children born in that era now to specific mental disabilities, physical disabilities, seeing and hearing and eye problems, skull-related issues that they weren't able to detect initially. So do we have the potential for an entire generation of Zika-impacted kids in a, a population of our size where we can't prevent all infection, obviously? That's what CDC is concerned about. It's getting congressional attention with potential new funding authorized in the very near future. And I just wanted to add one thing in terms of the unforeseen consequences in terms of potential genetic engineering of the mosquitoes, because I have seen some articles where people have raised the possibility that, you know, you you try to change only one thing, but then it's possible that something much more dramatic could change as well. And so I think that's a really interesting thing to uh, consider. And I'll, I'll put a link on our show page to some articles on this broader debate. Um, now, sort of transitioning from this playing God concern, it appears that um, this is bills to increase emergency funding to around $2 billion um, for this crisis or to reallocate Ebola funds to this crisis um, are bogged down in Congress because of concerns about potential use of the funding for Planned Parenthood or, or, or not the group Planned Parenthood, but for um, family planning or for um, uh, abortions or other reproductive uh, health issues. Is that really going to stop? Do you think that's really going to ultimately stop a concerted, well-funded response to uh, Zika? Frank, it's without question one of the premier problems right now in the United States. Sufficient funding to do what we now know can be at least uh, sound interventions. The funding's not there to make it happen. This is what uh, Larry Goss and I were noting so much in the JAMA piece, that if we don't get this type of congressional infusion of resources to state and local health departments already cash-strapped against a background of CDC reductions in funding over the last decade, if we don't get this done, there will be preventable cases of Zika-impacted infants and others that we'll all be pointing to six to eight months from now. Now, here's at least two reasons why it's proven problematic politically. The first you addressed, it's the most controversial one, and I'll get to that in one second. But let's just also be honest. What we're also hearing from various different uh, members of the House and Senate is, you know, we've been down this road before. The threat looks like it may be there. We're not taking it very seriously, and this is yet another request to use federal funds we don't have to address a particular condition that is really not that essential. This is the February, March, April argument you were seeing early this month. Congress has changed its tune on that. We're even seeing Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell make it very clear. We recognize this threat. We recognize it's serious, and we recognize we need to do something. But something more than just, you know, the paltry sum that looks like what we've authorized uh, so far in regards to $500 million or so reallocated from Ebola-related funds to uh, send to state and, and other uh, territories. These funds are not going to be sufficient. We cannot get done what we need to to actually prevent the greatest number of 
of uh, potential morbidity in regards to this particular condition. So more resources need to be forthcoming. That part in regards to how and when we allocate congressional resources to the feds, that's an interesting sort of political dynamic playing out. But the less understandable one relates to the potential utilization of this almost, almost just unethically sound suggestion that we won't fund Zika preparedness initiatives if there's just any chance it could be used in a way that might be contrary to the uh, morality or religious principles of uh, specific members of Congress or otherwise. Now, let's be sure of this. There will be no federal use of funds to fund abortions in relation to these specific conditions, as we all know that's federally disallowed under any circumstances. And that won't be done here in the United States and it won't be done overseas. But just the potential to use it to fund better contraception methods and to fund you know, other particular initiatives that could involve entities like Planned Parenthood and otherwise to distribute and to get contraception out to appropriate persons within the population. It's just almost unfathomable to believe that we won't get funding because of some person's uh, concerns or issues regarding the morality of that decision. This is a threat that will affect any level of persons in any part of our society through mosquitoes or sexual transmission. The wealthier have a much greater opportunity to avoid it altogether than persons maybe living in specific areas of Texas or Florida that lack air conditioning and lack other particular ways to prevent mosquito infection. But the simple fact is this is the time and place to authorize funding consistent with CDC approaches that are legally sound and truly grounded in what is the best in regards to preventing morbidity related to infant impacts most specifically in the population. So we've got congressionally to get over that, but at the state level too, I bet you're going to see some of those same arguments play out in some jurisdictions. We're tracking that very closely. I read, James, a, a really good piece that you co-authored in Disaster Medicine, uh, in which you uh, talk a, a lot more about uh, the Latin American uh, reproductive services issues. Uh, but I, I must say, and I think you, you started to uh, talk about this somewhat in your last answer, um, many of the uh, the statements, many of the opinions, uh, the concerns that uh, you all voiced in that piece about uh, the poor, um, disempowered women and so on, uh, struck me as uh, uh, frighteningly uh, close uh, to the bone uh, with regard to the likely path of Zika when it enters the United States. Um, if, you, if you think, and I know I overgeneralize slightly, but if you think of the southern states and the restrictions on abortion and uh, the poverty and the lack of reproductive services. Uh, your, uh, I thought your, your piece was not only excellent about talking about Latin America, but was, was terribly prescient. Nicholas, thank you. I appreciate that. I've seen the same things play out as well. What we tried to do with that specific piece is point out what's happening against a backdrop of public health authorities in Latin American countries basically saying, okay, we recognize we don't have any other options. We don't have the resources. We don't have the ability. We don't have the personnel to stop Zika virus. So we're going to ask you, pregnant or women within society, just please don't get pregnant. Let's just let's just take that public health initiative and run with it. This is unheard of in the past. This is not an option in so many ways, as we point out in the piece, and especially against a backdrop of domestic violence that results in unintended pregnancy. Uh, the fact that many many pregnancies, regardless of violence or otherwise, are unintended in Latin America and in the United States. 
and furthermore, against a backdrop of countries that actually greatly limit rights to various contraception and or access to it, and some, like El Salvador, completely prohibit abortions, period. This is a no-win situation for women in these countries. The really significant observations that we were making there can play out in the United States as well. I'm totally agreeing with you on that. We didn't think of it quite in that realm because we you know, obviously recognize our considerably more sophisticated public health system in the United States, great healthcare access in many different places. But when you really start to boil down the issues of law, policy, and reproductive rights in the United States, notwithstanding all of the measures and efforts and progress we've made compared to other countries globally, there are pockets and places in the United States that might assimilate exactly what's going on in Latin American countries. You have a right to an abortion should you get or, or uh, you know, acquire Zika infection in the midst of pregnancy or right before, obviously, some of the most significant times where you'd be concerned about its impact on, on a um, fetus. You have the right, but do you have access? Texas has done everything it can to make that very near to impossible in some parts of, of that very large and well-populated state. These are policies put into place, currently under review, as we know, uh, via uh, Supreme Court, but these are the types of policies that can replicate the same observations you're seeing in countries we consider on the developing side of where we may be with this. And then the final observation I thought was particularly telling. It's one we didn't predict at, at the point in time we were writing that piece a couple months ago, is whether or not you'd see similar recommendations to women in the United States. CDC's Dr. Tom Frieden has made it very clear that's not something he would anticipate necessarily stating directly through CDC. But it didn't stop the health secretary in Puerto Rico from making the very same statement to U.S. citizens in that territory not long ago, basically saying, well, our best bet here is to ask women to avoid pregnancy. It's just not uh, something from a public health perspective that you can you know, truly put into place and just hope for the best. One final observation. All of this gets really interesting, doesn't it, when you're not dealing with autonomous adults who may choose to get pregnant, but minors, teenagers, others whose decisions may be made for them, even legitimately and lawfully, but morally and ethically, wow, those controversies will be coming to the United States soon. And that's exactly what and how Zika vaults them into the limelight in relation to how to think through ethically and legally when these reproductive rights will come into play. Given that you just mentioned Puerto Rico, I wanted to mention one other dimension to this uh, crisis. Uh, given my theme on the podcast of exploring financialization and financial pressures on healthcare institutions, which is um, we have all heard in the news Puerto Rico is facing a uh, debt crisis. Um, lots of big hedge funds and others are essentially dictating terms to the island saying um, we'd rather you close down your elementary schools, stop trash collection, etc., to make sure that you can make the bond payments. Um, we really don't care about the welfare of the people there. And one of the things that I noticed that, you know, in terms of Puerto Rico's response is that you note that they plan to fix the price of condoms, repellents, and screens to discourage retailer gouging of, rather than, say, subsidizing purchases of these things, which would actually encourage uh, them rather than essentially setting the stage for an eventual shortage, as anyone who studied Econ 101 would know. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, in terms of these kinds of responses, you know, is there... 
And I see also the governor Christie uh, in New Jersey, rather than say investing funds, it appears wants to quarantine Zika infected individuals, um, even though there's no real health uh, rationale for that quarantine. I guess the his experience with the Ebola nurse was not that educational. So I guess one of the concerns uh, that I have here is that, you know, just given this overall trend toward austerity, um, that that's going to really accelerate the spread of the crisis. And we're seeing a sort of punitive or uh, response, uh, command and control response versus a sort of funding response that really seems to be what would be the ultimate solution here. Is that a, a good read on the on the problem overall? Yeah, Frank, I like your read on it quite a bit. And anytime you're looking at these specific issues, you often see these themes of under and over reaction, legally and politically and ethically. There's all these themes that relate to it. You've raised one in regards to the overreaction quite nicely. Governor Christie suggesting he would quarantine persons that have been exposed to Zika virus or isolate those that have contracted Zika virus. There is no legal basis for doing so, and that will be instantly challenged in a day or say, should he attempt to do it, instantly uh, over uh, ruled by a court in the jurisdiction affected. But the underreaction can be interesting as well. That's the lack of funding problem. That's the failure to appreciate the potential impacts on marginalized persons or vulnerable persons within society. And then you raise the very interesting and well-noted point about Puerto Rico and what it's attempting to do to limit price gouging and such. This is, this is not an overreaction in my view when you're dealing with Puerto Rico making a decision months ago to declare a state of emergency in regards to the situation as at hand, which does authorize, pursuant to that emergency declaration, several techniques it can utilize for the purposes of you know, effectuating uh, as rapid and fast of response efforts as possible. It could skew the market, I totally agree with you on that. I'm not the economist that can speak to that quite thoroughly, but I will say what they're attempting to do there is to make sure nobody's going to limit access to these particular types of of um, intermediary steps or, or, or um, products or facilities that are necessary to limit exposure, they're not going to gouge the prices of these to make unnecessary profit at a point in time when their population against everything going on there financially, which is a disaster in and of itself, as so many have commented in the presidential cycles. Uh, this is the type of emergency powers you see often used in these types of events. How it impacts the market and what and how we'll see Puerto Rico come out of this will not be fully determined until our after-the-fact sort of studies that we often do in these emergency events. One additional thought I think well worth noting, Puerto Rico has gotten national attention from the U.S., obviously. We have seen CDC infuse real dollars, real resources, real personnel to Puerto Rico. We saw NIH recently authorized $5 million to be utilized solely for Zika-related efforts largely through health clinics already established in Puerto Rico. So the infusion of resources is starting to show up there, but it's a microcosm of what you're going to see in a much bigger way soon in Florida, in Louisiana, in Alabama, in Texas, any of the places where these mosquitoes are going to be spreading very soon, very likely this summer, these issues are going to play out in very interesting ways. Let's uh, end, if we may, James, with some uh, reflections more directly on public health law. And uh, I'm cribbing now from the excellent Network for Public Health Law site, 
which uh, under emergency legal preparedness and response says the following. Despite significant reforms to state, tribal, and local emergency laws over the past decade, regional legal responses to public health emergencies continue to be disparate and at times conflicting. Modern public health legal reforms offer an array of legal options for lawmakers and policymakers, but do not always prescribe specific actions that legal and public health practitioners must take during emergencies. Rather, emergency laws generally present a menu of legal choices, often with little guidance for leaders making legal key decisions. Now, I know if I frame that as a question, what I'm really asking for as an answer is one of your excellent books. But I wondered if you could just sort of reflect uh, quickly on some of those issues. Here's what and how to assess the legality of what can be done in response to Zika or any other emerging infectious threat. And that is to acknowledge we've got a whole toolbox of powers and authorities we can now use. We didn't have this necessarily even 10, 15 years ago. We've crafted public health emergencies from basically the 9-11 anthrax-related events. These have been taken up and utilized by states. We've got this toolbox, but what's not there in that sort of menu-like way is there's not a prescription of exactly what to do and when. You're going to see state and local governments make different decisions based on when they time out their emergency declarations, whether they declare emergencies, what tools they think are fit for the purposes of responding that are consistent with their uh, citizens' uh, morality or ethical views on what government can and should do. But what I think you really have to assess and understand is that once you equip government with the sufficient authority, whether having to pursue an emergency declaration or use their day-to-day routine public health powers, once you equip them with that authority, the very best uses of those authority are things we start to see play out based on efficacious efforts, but they're based on the best science. It's not based on what one governor thinks is necessary to protect his or her population. It's based on what and how the science plays out in relation to the condition itself. What we know about Zika six months ago is drastically different than what we know now. These techniques will change, they'll modify, they'll be reformed and morph into a select series of guidance that we'll craft also you know, with federal, state, and local uh, legislators and policymakers but they will morph based on the fact that we've got multiple tools available to us. It's a question, which ones work best in regards to this specific threat? That's always at play. It's what I actually like to call this sort of process. I call it legal triage. We're doing what medical doctors would do with patients, except we're doing it in relation to the public health laws and policies that are available to us. What will work best to eliminate the threats to the uh, population health based on which specific legal intervention. It's real time and it's exciting, but if you don't do it well, the public will suffer. And that's where we're staying in relation to Zika. We need real guidance, we're developing it as we speak for the techniques and tools that we're gonna use for the next several months ahead. And that was this week's The Week in Health Law. A special thank you to Professor Hodge. Uh, James, this is such a serious topic and we really appreciate the time you spent with us. It was a true pleasure. and Thank you both for the opportunity to address these issues with such a great series of questions as well. Much appreciated. We post our show notes at twill.com. If you have a moment, please go to iTunes and rate the show. Uh, You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter and Frank, you can be reached this week. Please reach me at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.